Hello, and welcome to Hatton Around. I'm your host, Leanne Frederick, and this is about my international journey with hats and about millinery. Today, in honor of the recent release of the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, I'm going to do a book review for, on a book called Fifty Hats That Changed the World. It's by the Zine Museum and published in 2011. I really enjoyed this book. It was a great combination of lovely pictures and short paragraphs packed with information. The writing is accessible, but it also required a bit of stretch for my vocabulary, so I'll highlight a few of the words that I learned at the end of this. Hats um, have three possible purposes, protection, symbolic, and aesthetic. I like how the book finds a balance between these three factors. It highlights how a hat is often meshed with the wearer's identity, and this may be one of the reasons for the decline in wearing of hats after World War II. It may also be related to a general trend towards informality. I don't know if Philip Tracy, Stephen Jones, or Noel Stewart were influential in this book, but they all got a rather prominent shout-out early on in the, in the book. As I said, in general, I really liked the book, but there was a couple of things that I didn't agree with. One was the quote about how everything around us is designed, and being as the book was written by the Design Museum, I can see how that would be the case, in their opinion. But I personally think that most things um, are more likely to evolve more organically. With that said, um, let's take a look at the broad stroke overview of the book. It is heavily weighted to the 1900s by deferring several of the shapes into the 1900s, such as the bicorn, which was a hat commonly worn by captains and pirates, and I think they were around a long time before the 1900s. However, the first hat that was mentioned was an impressive crown from the 1300s. Monomaka's cap was the first crown worn to inaugurate Russian rulers, and it was used for four centuries. It's beautiful. It has a golden domed crown to it with a fur trim around it, it encrusted with jewels topped with a cross. As the book says, this crown conveys the wealth, power, and spiritual entitlement of the ruler who wore it. The next hat doesn't appear for another 400 years, and it refers to Marie Antoinette's milliner Rose Burton in 1787, and the concoctions that she created that sat upon the hair or wig in a way that you could often not tell the difference where one ended and the other started. Nine of the hats were listed in the 1800s, and a whopping 32 of the 50 hats were allocated to the 1900s. Reasonably, only seven of the hats were saved for the 2000s, since this was published in 2011. It must have been a rather daunting task to try to distill the entire history of hats into just 50, and also how to order them to be relevant and interesting. In general, I think the book is fantastic but bringing some of the older hat styles into the current times is misleading, such as the tweed flat cap that has been around for over 400 years but doesn't get a mention until the year 2000. One of the hats that I was particularly thrilled with was the bowler, which was introduced in 1848. It was made by James Locke & Co. It was commissioned by Edward Coke for his gamekeepers to protect their heads from low branches, and it was designed by Thomas and William Bowler. 
this is this was very exciting for me because in London Hat Week 2014, I went on a tour of James Locke & Co. on St. James Street in London. If you get a chance, it is a lovely store. The people were delightful and the hats in history are unmatched. The ladies' hats are upstairs and designed by Sylvia Fletcher. I've not met Ms. Fletcher, but one of the ladies that works there, Claire Strickland, is a really talented milliner. I met her last year at London Hat Week also. I've put a link in my blog to her, her blog. Two other elements of the bowler is that in the U.S. it's called a derby and that it has made its way around the world and has become part of the traditional dress of the peasant Bolivian women. And I learned about this in college. I'll see if I can find a picture to put in the blog as well. Since we speak English and Americans are theoretically speak English, I'm constantly surprised at how different terms keep coming up. For example, the other day somebody mentioned a balaclava and I later figured out that that is the name for a ski mask or what I've always known as a ski mask. They also use the word cello pets for powder pants for going to the snow, which is kind of on the side here. So anyway, I was delighted when this 50 hats that changed the world brought up the balaclava so I could see how it was spelled and a little bit of the history of it. The balaclava was introduced in 1854. Then shortly following that comes the Victorian bonnet introduced. Well, there, there's various ranges of it in, throughout the 1800s. And in the book, they've put it under 1860. And they come in all different shapes with lots of trimmings with ruffles and flowers. And I am working on a class right now at Morley College using strip straw to create Victorian bonnets. The book highlights all kinds of different things through the 18, late 1800s and early 1900s, such as the trilby, the Australian akubra, the turban, the cloche, then it goes on into the 1900s, and as I mentioned before, a lot of things were loaded into the 1900s. But one of them that I don't really get why it was mentioned at all is in 1987, it refers to Maria Blaze's mesh floppy hat. And the only thing I can figure out is that it was instrumental not because of its design, but because it was the introduction of a new material called cinema which is made from the abaca tree, a member of the banana palm family, and it is now used pervasively in the world of millinery. One of the best things about this book was that I learned about people that I'd never heard of and probably should have, such as Alice O'Reilly, who was the milliner for Cecil Beaton, um, and he is the designer who did the hats for Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady as well as the designer Linda Hemming, who designed the large black hat worn by Andy McDowell in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Again, in the blog, I put a, a little link to the company who made the hat, Harold and Hart, in London. In addition to learning about new people, I also learned more about people that I'd heard of but didn't know much about, such as Philip Somerville. The millinery community was saddened last November in 2014 with his passing. I knew that he was a very accomplished milliner, and that several of the well-known London mil current London milliners apprenticed with him. What I hadn't known was that he made hats for Diana, Princess of Wales, and held a royal warrant as milliner to the Queen. On a more personal note, 
I have fairly recently acquired a hat block from Philip Somerville's collection at one time, and it's a beautiful beret. I have one that is blocked. It's half done. It's waiting for the trimming, and I can't wait to finish it. I'll post a picture when it's done. The second to last hat was one that was worn by Aretha Franklin. It was a gray felt, and she wore it on the inauguration of Barack Obama. I don't know if the hat itself qualifies as changing the world, but the inauguration of America's first black president certainly does. Noel Stewart finishes the lineup, but it's his quote that caught my attention. People often draw parallels with sculpture and fashion, but in the case of millinery, it's a genuine love match. I like that quote. I checked out my book, from the Morley College Library and enjoyed reading it, although I think I might actually, if I come across it, buy it, as there was a lot of good reference material, and there were several things that I would have highlighted. I ended up having to look up several words when it was over, like a let motif of the Queen's style, which is a recurring musical idea, which is associated with a particular idea, character, or place. Also, the classic ska uniform. Um, Ska refers to a music genre that originated in Jamaica in the late 1950s, and it was related to the pork pie hat. The last word that I'm going to talk about is ovur, and I probably shouldn't since I can't say it, but it's spelled O-E-V-U-R-E, and it was used in a statement about Vivian Westwood's Electric Ovur collection. Um... And it refers to the body of work of a painter, composer, or author. I love how this book brings together everything from bicycle helmets and balaclavas to very iconic and high stylized hats, such as the iconic heads from 2003 by the House of Flora with Neil Moody. And I I love that it ties it together. Together with my life, I've bumped into, I'm pretty sure that I've seen the piece in this book at a museum in Paris a couple of years ago that's just around the corner from the Louvre. We weren't allowed to take pictures, so I can't go back and make sure it's the exact same one, but I'm pretty sure it is. It's fun when things come together like that. Cheers. And remember, interesting people wear hats. Mm-hmm.